Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. You just never know what you're going to hear here at MCC. But there's a point, you know? We need to learn more, look more, and live more like Jesus and, and look more like Him. And so, why not teach our kids to do just that too? Today's question of the week, though, is what about God and science? Now, I'm just going to own this up front. Angie has more science classes than I do. She refused to preach today, so you're stuck with me. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I, because of where I'm at, I've got to make this as simplistic as I can. Can you be a person of faith while at the same time be someone that values objectivity and science. A lot of people assume that, the, that what the Bible teaches and what science has discovered are, are 180 degrees opposite, and they're completely incompatible. But let's just be honest. 30 minutes may be longer than you want to listen to me, but 30 minutes is nowhere near enough time to even ask all the questions about science in the Bible, let alone answer them. So I'm not going to explore every aspect of the theory of evolution or, or anything like that. I just, I just want you to be encouraged today that what we can do is take a look about the nature of faith and the nature of science and realize it is possible for faith and science to coexist. They're not enemies. And we don't have to stand against Everybody who's not a person of faith and is a person who you know, believes in and promotes science, we can do that as well. We don't have to surrender that ground to them. Now, here's an illustration that may help, okay? What you're looking at behind me is a subway map of New York City. I've not been there. Don't know that I really want to go. But if you visit New York City for the first time, someone hands you this subway map, you think you can find your way around town? Well, maybe, as long as you took the subway everywhere because it's a subway map. But if you're trying to drive around New York City in a car, using a subway map is going to be a disaster, right? There's no grid for the streets. There's no intersections identified. You're just going to be frustrated. Now, that doesn't make the subway map wrong. It's just that one's a street map and one's a subway map, and they're completely different. They both accurately describe the same place. One's above ground, though, and one's below ground. And that's what we need to remember, because when it comes to creation, science asks how. And faith asks why. It's a map of the same place. It's just a different map in how and why. That's why the focus of science is on those questions like how, about materials and, and their interaction, what makes them do what they do. Science is concerned with what you measure, what you can measure, what you can study, and how you can redu or duplicate it and reproduce it in a lab. But the why questions, the why questions are more focused on function and purpose. For example, I really don't need to figure out how to design my own lawnmower. I just need the blasted thing to start when I pull on the cord, right? 
I just want it to work. Science can tell us what we're made of, but faith can tell us what we're made for, right? So those how and why questions are two dramatically different questions. And because of that, their answers, their conclusions, don't necessarily make each other untrue. They don't necessarily cancel each other out. They're just different maps of the same place. Let me illustrate it this way, okay? If I come in and there's a pot of water boiling on the stove, and I ask Claudia, why is there water boiling? One answer, depending on her, how her day's gone, may be because I turned the burner on, which heated up the metal, and it created a molecular reaction. It transferred the metal's heat to the water, and that created a chemical reaction. That's why the water's boiling. Or the answer I'm probably looking for is because I'm making spaghetti for supper. The perception that God and the Bible and faith and church are incompatible with science happens when people try to answer questions about how with why and questions about why with how. In a nutshell, that explains the myth that scientists are anti-faith. Elaine Howard Eklund was a professor at Rice University. She was the author of Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. And she did a research project. She surveyed 1,700 professional scientists and conducted an in-person interview with 250 of them. And the results of her survey indicated that most of what we believe about the faith lives of elite scientists at the university and, and industrial level is completely wrong because nearly 50% of them are really religious so clearly the idea that most scientists are anti-faith is a myth that we'd swallowed that's consistent with another stereotypical myth though and that is that Christians are anti-science as evidence they usually point out with what happened to Galileo a few centuries back nothing like current relevant information right but they'll point out to what happened to Galileo because contrary to the prevailing opinion of his day he proposed that the earth revolved around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth the church thought that was heresy and so they put him under house arrest and imprisoned him for the rest of his life that's why their conclusion is frequently see Christians don't believe in science well here's the thing though all truth not just theory, hear that, not just theory, but scientifically proven truth is true because of the order that God created the world with. The problem with both Galileo and us is that people in power will corrupt science and faith so that they can stay in power. I need to say that one more time, just so you can find that hook to, to hang on to. The problem usually isn't with science, and neither is the problem with faith. The problem is with power that corrupts. And so both people of faith and people of science become desperate to hold on to that power and to stay in power. Now, if a name comes to your mind or a face, that's fine. I'm not going to show one. You fill in the blanks with yourself. 
for yourself. If somebody disagrees with their politically motivated position that enables them to stay in power, they're going to be attacked as either a fanatical Christian science denier or they're going to be attacked as a, a heretical faith denier. And it's all because of power, not because of faith and not because of science. And it's because of the corruption in their own heart that cares more about staying in power and control than it does either about faith or science. We easily get intimidated by that kind of a discussion when we know that people disagree with us. As Christians, we can celebrate, we ought to celebrate any truth because every truth comes from God. When Paul spoke to a crowd in Athens, he didn't they didn't believe yet what he believed about God, but he did find something, a truth that they could both agree on, that there is a God. He knew that God. They didn't, but they were willing to worship that God. Paul understood that truth is truth, regardless of who says it or where you find it. That's why he would say this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, dwell on these things. You see, it doesn't matter whether that truth is a truth of faith coming from Scripture or whether it's a truth of science coming from a professional who makes his living in that field. People can be brilliant scientists and passionate believers in God who are committed to following Jesus. They're not mutually exclusive. Here's another example. A guy named James Polkinghorne. Took me a while to catch that one. Excuse me, it's John. I was so focused on Polkinghorne, I missed the easy one at James and John. He's a quantitative physicist at Cambridge University, at least until he left the physics department to become an Anglican priest. Now, his critics said, how could somebody so gifted and so scientific decide to do something so unscientific? His answer was simple. Both are concerned with a search for truth. Faith and science, right? If science and theology are both concerned with a search for truth, then they're friends and not foes. And we need to remember that. We need to remind people that express those doubts to us about that. We're on the same side. We're both trying to find the why of life. It might help us to remember how modern science developed. A French philosopher, Luke Ferry, not Luke Perry, Luke Ferry, wrote a bestseller, and that bestseller was called A Brief History of Thought. And what kind of a person do you have to be to write a book and say, this is so grand and so glorious, I'm going to call it the history of thinking. Well, that was him. Luke, not Perry, Ferry, okay? He was a French philosopher, and he wrote this brief history of thought. And in it, he described how the contemporary thought movements throughout history really only spread across the globe as Christianity expanded their influence. Think human rights. Think modern science. Think the rights of women and children. And yeah, you could even say racial equality. As Christianity expands, 
so does the thought of modern science. We are all created equal. Now, prior to the spread of Christianity, Greek philosophy of that day said that the mind was the most important thing there was about life. Nothing else really mattered. They felt like nothing in the world mattered because it was just a temporary illusion. But Christianity introduced the concept that the world was created by God and it was good. That means you and I were created good. And everything in the world, including us, has value because of how God created it. Believers who were also scientists, began looking for signs of order and intention. They believed in intelligent design by a God who created the world this way. That's why a study of the universe has led many scientists to a creator, not away from one. The more they learned about science by their observations in their lab work, the more their results led them to the conclusion that there must be a creator behind the truth that they had discovered in the microscope. Francis Collins was an atheist through his 20s. But as a medical student, his observations about biology and anatomy caused him to reconsider the idea of intelligent design. As you would guess, it wasn't easy for him to move away from atheism and toward becoming a believer in a creator. But he went on to work in the field of genetics, eventually leading the Human Genome Project in the 90s. Their work mapped out the complete text for human DNA for the very first time. And he would later write a book called The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. Clearly this guy has had more science classes than I have. And I'm okay with owning that, but listen to his observations. He says, for me, the experience of sequencing the human genome and uncovering the most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion for worship. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. Now, he's not talking about the little yard, yard thing, you know. He's talking about what's going on in here. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. One of the premier scientists in the world. And he found more reasons to believe in God, not less. The conclusion was the same one reached by the psalmist hundreds of years ago. It's in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, I look at the heavens that you made with your hands, and I see the moon and the stars that you created, and I wonder, why do you care so much about humans? Why do you even notice them? How humbling to be under the stars, enveloped by darkness, and to realize not just the vastness of the universe, but also by contrast, how small and apparently insignificant we are. It was in 1990 already, 2000, 2010, 2020, and we're in 21. 
over 30 years ago, they sent Voyager 1 into space. And it took pictures of outer space. One in particular became rather famous. It was, three, it was taken 3.7 billion miles from Earth. How do you know? I mean, is there a speedometer on the ship? What are the we- how do the wheels turn and make the wheel? My- I don't know. But anyway, it's out there. They took a picture. Here's Earth. That's us. You and me. Everybody in the room. And Carl Sagan made the observation. It's just a pale blue dot. A speck of dust suspended in a sunbeam. How could we have any significance to attract the attention of a creator? Now that was his opinion. But the more we've explored space, the more unique Earth has become in our understanding of the ability to sustain life. Non-Christian scientists refer to it as the fine-tuning argument. There's a guy named Stephen Hawking. And he speaks on how the world works in regard to the laws of science. And he says this, These realities seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Even non-Christian scientists admit that the fine-tuning argument is a real thing. It's one of the most compelling arguments that believers have for a creator. Science and faith aren't at odds with each other. You don't have to choose between one or the other. The number of details that had to line up for just the right way for life to exist is mind-boggling. Let me give you another, another illustration. Take a look at this command control center, okay? Wouldn't a five-year-old love to get loose in there with all those knobs, right? And yet each one of those knobs has to be adjusted precisely for mission success. It's described in mathematics as six dimensionals for physical constants. At least that's what I read. I don't know. It made sense while I was reading it. That's what they describe it as. Six dimensionals for physical constants. In other words, you have to have everything just exactly right. If the amount of iron in the earth's soil and water was less, it wouldn't be able to sustain advanced life forms. At the same time, if there was too much iron, then any form of life would die off due to iron poisoning. That's why it's also referred to as the Goldilocks principle. It's not too hard, it's not too soft, it's just right. (laughs) But the Goldilocks principle isn't just for little kids at bedtime. Unless you really don't want to read to your kids stories about bears, you know, at bedtime. But anyway, it's the idea that sometimes things are just right, and that's the idea in overcoming our doubts about God and science, that as you consider how the earth was designed, it had to be just right. Here's another illustration for you. If the size of the galaxy was a little bit bigger, it would disrupt the sun's orbit. The volatility would create what's referred to as galactic eruptions. Now, there's a fun scientific phrase for all of us to be entertained by. If the galaxy were a little bit smaller, 
there wouldn't be enough gas to sustain the formation of stars and the rotation of the whole thing would fall apart. And while on the idea of fine-tuning arguments, think of Earth's location in the solar system. The bigger planets like Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune serve as shields for Earth from asteroids and passing space junk. On the other hand, the smaller planets like Mercury, Venus, Mars, and yes, poor little Pluto. But anyway, they serve as counterweights in the gravitational pull of the larger ones. Again, the larger ones and the smaller ones are placed exactly in the right orbit for Earth to sustain life. Add up all the statistics of everything necessary for Earth to sustain life and it is virtually an impossibility to calculate what the odds are that it just happened on its own. Someone did the fine-tuning. And that is the reason why we are here today worshiping God in faith, trusting that that someone is God who created the world. That's why in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. The more scientists studied the universe, the more they discover the handiwork of God in the cosmos. And all of that brings us back to the question, did God really create the universe? And how did it all begin? Yep. Those who are reluctant to accept the idea of a divine solution or intelligent design want to claim the moral high ground, that somehow they portray themselves as intellectually superior to those of us that can't even pronounce or spell intellectually, let alone talk about science. And they imply that Christians are somehow then intellectually inferior because, after all, it takes a leap of faith to believe what you believe. But when it comes to how the universe began, know this to be true. Both Christians and non-Christians alike make claims that require faith. Neither group has enough actual evidence to honestly claim their conclusion is based on fact. Both of our conclusions involve some degree of faith, and that's okay to admit. You just base your faith on the evidence that you have. That's not an insult. It's just a reality that even some of the world's top scientists and some of the world's most humble believers can agree on. There's a guy named Alan Sandage. He's an American astronomer. You may not have heard of him, but you probably have heard of the Hubble telescope. Sandage is the guy that worked with Edwin Hubble in developing the, this telescope. And his observation is this. The Big Bang was a supernatural event. Now, he doesn't say supernatural like super. He, he says supernatural as it's something that happened outside of nature. The Big Bang was a supernatural event that can't be explained within the realm of physics as we know it. This is about to get fun. You talk about a headache. If you reject the idea of God as a creator, then what you're really saying is this. 
Well, first there was nothing. And then there was something. The only problem is that's scientifically impossible because you can't get something from nothing. So what was the nothing made of before it became something? And what was it that made the nothing that must have had a little bit of something in it, but not enough to say it was something, just a little bit of nothing? You know, what was there that was in that that made it start to do something all by itself before it evolved into someone, and then here we are claiming that nothing became something all by itself? Pass the aspirin. You see, even a biochemist like Klaus Dose, like Uno Dose, Klaus Dose made this observation, more than 30 years of experimentation on the origin of life in the fields of chemical and molecular evolution. Okay, clearly I couldn't carry this guy's diploma, and I, I, I accept that, but here's what he says. I've spent 30 years in this field of scientific study. And it's led me to a better perception of the immensity of the problem of the origin of life on earth rather than to its solution. Hear this. At present, all discussions on principal theories and experiments in the field either end in stalemate or in confession of ignorance. Now, if I could be so bold as to summarize what Klaus said and give you a nugget to take home with you this really smart guy who spent a lot of time and a lot of his life studying stuff that i probably couldn't understand he says this the more we learn the more we have to admit we don't know at least he's honest right well so why do we get so defensive and frustrated and feel so intimidated when guys with more frames on the wall than we've had since high school why do we get so intimidated talking about that well it's probably because we tend to approach these kind of discussions of science and faith and evolution and creation like it like the first domino theory you've messed with dominoes right you know what happens when you line them up and then you knock the first one over everyone follows after that first domino if you treat the how questions of science and faith and evolution as created and creation as if it were the first domino, then you can't let that first domino fall. You've got to superglue it in place. You've got to screw it down. You cannot let that first domino fall. Because if that first domino falls, then every other domino of what you believe falls behind it. But not every question is worth defending as a first domino issue. Like the age of the earth. I don't think that's a first domino issue that has to be defended. Or any type of evolution. Clearly, there are some types of evolution that we can observe. Some types of evolution. But you can't even get every scientist to agree on the how questions. Like good old Klaus Dose said, the more we learn, the more we know we don't know. If that's the case, it must be okay if we disagree on some things. We may have different answers to how, but we can all unite 
on the question of who and why. And that's going to go a long way toward cutting away some of the tension around these questions. For example, let's start with this. In Genesis 1, verse 1, in its simplistic and yet its scientific profoundness, the observation is made in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how did he do that? Does it really matter? What were the logistics? I want to know the details. How did he get and how? We weren't there. We don't know. And there's no way we'll ever know unless there's video in heaven. The Bible doesn't concern itself with how it happened. But instead, the primary thing that the Bible wants us to take away is who made it happen and why it happened. Scripture says that it was by His hand and for His glory, and that tells us who we are and why we're here. That's the focus of God. He wants us to know why we were created. He wants us to know that we are here for His glory. Listen to John's parallel explanation in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And John uses the exact same phrasing as Genesis 1 because he wants us to know that the God of creation is also the Jesus who recreates us so that that which is old and ruined can also be made brand new in Him. Listen to his focus in John 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory. Sounds like an eyewitness testimony. It was the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. David, why don't you in a praise team join me on stage? I'm going to wrap up with this. And again, you may, be, you may be disappointed because you were hoping for more detailed answers about all of your how questions. Just know this, the how answers may change as scientific discoveries are made through the years, but there's one thing that remains the same. There's one thing that's a constant no matter what decade it is. And that one thing that I can tell you with all confidence is that there's only one thing that's capable of uniting us in our faith. And that's the who and the why of creation. Jesus, the one who wrote the DNA code, became actual DNA flesh and blood. Jesus is the ultimate answer to all of our questions. He is the who. He is the why. He is the how. And he demonstrates the reason for our existence, living a life that is in alignment with the will of God, who is our creator. And when we do like he did, then our life begins to make sense.
When we don't, like everybody else in the history of the world, our life is a disaster. And we've got more questions than answers. But if we live our life in a way that brings honor and glory to God, then we are content with that sense of peace. That we are one with the one who created it all. Are you living the truth about life as revealed by Jesus? Or are you floundering around in your desire and your denial about God? If you need prayer, if you need wisdom, if you need guidance, one of our elders will be happy to meet with you and pray with you in our prayer room here to the side while we stand and sing this next song. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.